Acts 15, verses 1 through 6. Let's read together and let us read aloud. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and of studying it, Lord, today. We ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit to give us your wisdom, to give us your understanding, to give us clarity of this very important topic today. And not so much dealing with conflict resolution as we'll see that in the, in the days to come concerning this passage. But most importantly, what the issue was and how that issue today affects us. We ask you, Lord God, to open our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to everything that you have before us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You all may be seated. It goes without saying that when God opens doors for the furtherance of the gospel, the enemy of our souls does everything that he can to close these doors in an expeditious or speedy manner. And oftentimes he uses closed-minded believers not only to hinder the progress of the gospel, but even to block the way for others. The enemy of our souls, of course, is the devil who we call Satan. And this is what he tries to do each and every time God opens a door. For example, in 1786, the British Baptist preacher William Carey, known as the father of modern Protestant missions, having laid the burden of world missions before a ministerial meeting in Northampton, England, was responded to rather harshly by one Dr. Ryland, who said to Carey, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. For some people that may have silenced them, but it didn't stop William Carey, because Carey persisted. Carey had prayed and sought the face of the Lord. Carey, Carey had, had opened God's Word, had seen the commission given by Jesus to his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he, having seen himself to be a disciple, of Jesus Christ 
was no less desirous of wanting to fulfill that calling. And so Carey persisted in praying and in pleading and in plotting and even in his preaching for the message that is entitled, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God, a message by William Carey to his church, not only resulted in the Baptist Missionary Society, but was the springboard for his missionary endeavor in India, where he served the Lord for 41 years, and by the way, never returning again to England. But he served the Lord for 41 years, translating the scriptures into 40 languages. And just to get a little bit of an idea of the character and the heart of this man, on his deathbed, William Carey called out to a missionary friend, and he said to him, Dr. Duff, you have been speaking about Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's God. That charge was symbolic of Carey, considered by many to be a unique figure towering above both contemporaries and successors in the ministry of missions. But he had to overcome that desire to close a door that God had already begun, began to open for this missionary. So doors had opened in our last study of, of uh, chapter 14. Doors had opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Gentiles, which had been reported by Paul and Barnabas. And by the way, we see that in Acts 14, verse 27, just a couple of verses before our chapter here today. It says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together there in Antioch of Syria, they reported all that God had done with them, and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But as we enter into chapter 15, they are now facing the same challenge of closed-minded, legalistic teachers who sought to hinder the growth and advancement of the gospel of grace among Gentiles. And you'll notice again in verse 1 that it says, And certain men, I don't know if some of you remember this, but not too long ago, <clears throat> not too many weeks ago, I did a series of studies based upon Jude verse 4 that began very similar. That certain men, Jude said, had crept in unnoticed into the church. Certain men. I think that particular phrase is very important here. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless is the key word here. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. One of the most difficult things for human beings to grasp and to take hold of in their minds is the freeness of God's salvation. The freeness of God's salvation. In other words, grasping the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And the main reason is because they always want to add something to it. People always feel like they have to add something. This, you know, this is free, I, I know, but, but somehow I need to add something to this. And we may ask the question, how can it be that the believer in Jesus Christ is justified by faith and justified on the ground of the finished work of Christ and on nothing else? How can it be? Now, this may sound rather bold to some, 
But it is in no way less than the truth to say that if a person is trying to add anything to the work of Christ for salvation, then that person is not saved and is operating under a seriously grave misunderstanding and error. And I stand on that statement. And this is the reason. Because the mindset of of man, the mindset of human beings is, their response to that is, well, of course you need the grace of God to be saved, since no one can save himself, but you still have to do something. And someone will come along and say, that something may be baptism. Yes, you're saved by faith, but you must be baptized to get to heaven. Well, our answer to that is this. We practice baptism, but not as a means of salvation. Another person may say, grace may save us, but it is mediated through the sacraments. And you must partake of the Lord's Supper to have divine life. Our answer to that is, we do observe the Lord's Supper but not as a means of salvation. Yet others will say, yes, we're saved by grace, but but God saves men through the church. And you must join this particular church if you want to be saved. Our answer to that is, we believe in the church. We believe in the body of Christ. But the church does not save, nor does it have anything to do with the putting away of sin. There are other voices out there. If you want to be saved, you must speak in tongues. Anybody ever heard that? I have. If you want to be saved, you must speak in tongues. If you want to be saved, you must do good works. If you want to be saved, you need to dress and act and pray and worship, just like we do. May I say to you that absolutely nothing, nothing, Nothing is to be added to the propitiatory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is to be added to the atoning sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ground of our salvation. Not one thing. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And in reality, we should read from verses 1 down, but because of time, I want to start right here because of this one word, but, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. And notice verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses. What can anybody do? And of course this is speaking of spiritual deadness. But nonetheless, if we're spiritually dead, what can we do? Nothing, because we're dead. There are no spiritual zombies. You've seen the movies? Night of the Living Dead. When you're dead, you're dead. You don't do anything. You can't add anything. So he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God did. Made us alive together with Christ. And notice in parentheses, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in in Christ Jesus. And notice verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast it is the gift of God 
And some people will say, yeah, but I mean, doesn't it have to be your faith? Can I tell you that the Bible teaches us that God is the one that gives us faith? Where does faith come from? Romans chapter 10. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. You've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You say, but don't we have to repent? Yes. Did you know that repentance is a gift also? That the Lord might grant us repentance is a statement that Paul made to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Even repentance itself is a gift that God gives so that we might be saved. But God has done everything. There's not one thing we can add to that. Turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. I think you finally are beginning to realize that this is all fundamental, foundational teaching. It's going back to the basics for just a, a, a little bit here to establish what we're going to see in chapter 15. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish. By the way, remember we were dead? We were also disobedient? And we were also doomed? That's what you read in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead, we were disobedient, and we were doomed. And with that, what do we add to our salvation? Nothing. Okay, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, But, and there's that word again, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, notice verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, now we see the whole of the Godhead in the salvation of men. To the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And notice, verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not one thing that we can add to our salvation. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were at war with God before we came to Christ. But when when Christ conquered us, peace finally came. And if you jump down to verses 6 through 8, it says, for when we were still without strength. By the way, when you're without strength, what does that mean? You can do nothing. I think the the scriptures are so clear to draw that picture for us. That there is nothing that we can add to the salvation that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Aren't you glad that it doesn't say that Christ died for the ones that worked real hard not to be ungodly? Because if that would be the case, then we would not have needed to die because we worked our way out of ungodliness. No, we were dead. We were doomed, we were deceived, we were disobedient, and we needed Him to die for us. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What can we add to our salvation? Or better yet, what good thing can we bring to add to our salvation? Not one thing. If anything, if anything, we bring only one thing, and that is our dirty, stinky, rotten sin. Well, that's nothing for us to be very proud of. 
in bringing to our salvation. But that's the reason why Jesus died. Because we are sinners. And we needed a Savior. And if this isn't enough to convince us, let's look at what Jesus said or what was said of Him. Of course, you all know John 3.16. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him, through Him, through Him might be saved. And then, of course, there is that classic verse of Scripture, Jesus Himself saying to His disciples, in, in particular to one disciple, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John fourteen six. With all of these things in mind, with everything that we've just heard about that foundation of our salvation, let's get back to our text here in the book of Acts. In the early years of the church, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, you, sh- you should know this. In the early years of the church, the first believers were Jewish. They had grown up in Judaism. They were connected to their traditions, holding to certain things that people needed to do to be saved. They, they, they needed to you know, keep the ceremonial law, they keep the ritual law, they, they did the sacrificial law and all of that. They couldn't be saved without being a Jew. And they truly believed that the path to Jewishness was through the door of circumcision. And so in the very early days, these convictions weren't a serious problem. Why? Because all the Jews that were Christians were still Jews and were all circumcised. So there wasn't a problem. And there weren't many Gentiles. But as the size of the Gentile church grew, it became problematic for those steeped in the Jewish tradition. The Gentiles were not rejecting their backgrounds in order to become Jews. And on top of that, the Jews in the church were becoming a minority as more and more Gentiles were added to the church. And so, as word was coming back to Jerusalem that there were Gentiles receiving and accepting the truth of Jesus Christ and becoming Christians, not only uh, in Judea and Samaria and the northern regions of the land, but now in other places like Asia Minor. A settlement established for the church in Antioch, and from there they sent off Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel, and mostly to, to Gentiles. Some Jews, but mostly Gentiles. And so what is happening here? Certain men, it says, and this is important for you to understand, certain men, we're told in verse 1, came down from Judea and they taught the brethren. You know, the Bible tells us, as a matter of fact, James tells us this, that not too many ought to be teachers because there is a tremendous responsibility in teaching that we, who are teachers, will have to bear the judgment of it if we teach falsely. And so these certain men went off to teach brethren 
this message. Unless you are circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. And here is the cry of false teachers and false uh, teaching even to this day. Even to the day in which we live, it is unless, unless you take the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrines and Covenants and all these other things, a pearl of great price in the Mormon church, unless you can't be saved. Unless you take the Bible, which is our translation of the Bible, and the writings of Charles Taze Russell, and that of the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York City, Jehovah's Witnesses, you cannot be saved. Unless you take the Bible and the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science, you cannot be saved. Unless you take Jesus and and the Bible plus sacraments, you cannot be saved. This is very critical here. These certain teachers, Jewish Christians who were often called Judaizers, because they wanted to bring everyone back, whether Jew or Gentile, they need to come back to the issue of being Jewish before you're a Christian. These certain teachers were men associated with the Jerusalem congregation, but they weren't recognized and authorized by that congregation. How do we know this? In Acts 15, go down to verse 24. And notice in verse 24 that it says, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. This is the church. These are the leaders in Jerusalem. Peter as well. We didn't give them commandment to do this. We didn't give them this to teach. We didn't send them out. Certain men decided they were going to come and teach this false doctrine, this heretical teaching. And not only were they unauthorized to do so, but they also were identified with the Pharisees from Jerusalem, as we read uh, in verse 5 here. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, not only are they to be circumcised, now they have to keep the law of Moses. And so these teachers were false brethren who wanted to rob the Jewish and the Gentile believers of their liberty in Jesus Christ. And Paul, who was a Jewish believer, would write of this in his letter to the Galatian churches. And and in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want you to notice this. We're going to come back to this next time as we, as we expand our, our view of chapter 15. But here it says, Paul writing to the Galatians, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but, but privately to those who are of reputation, 
lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. In other words, he took it to the leadership of the Jerusalem church privately so that they could hear how he did it, what he did, what he said. And then notice verse 3, it says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a, a Greek or Gentile, as it were, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secret, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, being those certain men. And we could actually call them secret agent Christians. Stealth and spies. And notice in verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission, not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We didn't yield to that false teaching, not even an hour, to continue to give you the truth of the gospel. Later on in that same book, Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Folks, their, their, their ignorance was not so much in the law of Moses as it was in the relationship between law and grace. These were Jews who were trained to respect and obey the law of Moses. And it is important to note that Paul's letters to the Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews had not, you know, they had yet to be written. So out of all of this will come these particular letters. All in all, it was a time of transition. And we, we know, depending on, on, on what it is that, that we find ourselves being in, where transition is necessary, that any time there is transition, it's a difficult time. And this was a transition. It was what some have considered to be a, a, a great turning point in the history of the church to confront these particular issues, to confront these errors and these teachings... And so such a time like this and such a transitional time like this is a difficult time. And we're going to deal with that as we get into the rest of, of this particular chapter. But now let's consider what these legalists were actually doing and why they were so dangerous. Primarily, they were attempting to mix law and grace and to pour the new wine, as it were, into ancient brittle wineskins, as Jesus described in Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39. As Jesus speaks this parable, he says, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Sounds like the clothes we used to wear in the 60s. You know, putting patches all over the place and, and whatnot. But then it says in verse 37, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. An old brittle wineskin, if you put new wine, new wine has, you know, it's still fermenting, and in that process everything expands. So if you have a brittle cover, that thing's going to burst. But it says, verse 38, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Why? The new wineskin is still, you know, is still supple, it still has room to expand, and so whatever is inside that expands, it just expands with it. So the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better, that's for another time. So this is what they were attempting to do. 
They're trying to put new wine into old wineskins. Uh, let's, let's, let's look at another couple of, uh, of thoughts here. Do you remember the temple veil that was torn from top to bottom at the moment that Jesus died on the cross? Do you remember that? In one, in one gospel uh, uh, account, it says it was torn from top to bottom. In Luke chapter 23, just for you to remember it, Luke 23 verses, 20, uh, verses 45 and 46, it says the sun was dark and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. At that very moment, the veil temple was torn in two. And again, it says from top to bottom. Well, can you imagine, for just a moment, can you imagine people trying to stitch that torn veil back up? Just think about it. Think about the fact that that veil, by the way, was almost two feet thick that separated the, the holy place from the most holy place. And yet God himself tore that veil in two. By the way, there, there's a type here. It's, it's representing the body of Christ uh, itself broken for us, but we'll see that in just a moment. But it's torn in two. So can you imagine trying to sew that veil back up? This is what they're trying to do. Let's sew the veil back up. Essentially, the Judaizers were blocking the new and living way to God that Jesus opened when He died on the cross. When Jesus died, He did so, so that the veil would be rent and we could come now in the name of Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ, into the most holy place with no obstruction whatsoever. And we see that very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Here He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter... The holiest, by the blood of Jesus, notice, by a new and living way. Not the old way, but a new and living way, which He consecrated for us, notice, through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because that veil has been torn in two and the, the, the access has been made to the most holy place, we can come with that assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see, everything is different now because of the access we have to the grace and mercy of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So here they are trying to stitch up the veil again. What else are they trying to do? They're trying to rebuild the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus himself had torn down on the cross. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentile. He's made us one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. In other words, the ordinances, the laws, the rituals, the rites, the circumcision. 
and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, Gentiles, and to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. What Jesus did on the cross was tear down that wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, and we've become one. By the way, Jews and Gentiles now become something different. The body of Christ, the church. But now they want to build a wall back up. They want to stitch up the the curtain or the veil. What else? Well, they also wanted to place the heavy Jewish yoke on Gentile backs and shoulders. And by the way, putting a yoke of bondage upon them which they themselves couldn't even carry themselves. I said themselves twice, didn't I? Which they themselves couldn't carry. Galatians 5.1, I read it before, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. If you're in Acts 15, where you should have a bookmark, go down to verse 10 there. Because here is a question being asked of these Judaizers. Now therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. You're wanting them to bear it now, you couldn't bear it yourself. You see, the problem is that here they wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised. And their thinking was the wrong thinking because, you see, they considered that it had to be the physical aspect of it. And yet, if you go back to Deuteronomy and the book of Jeremiah, in both of those two Old Testament books where circumcision is mentioned, it is not mentioned as a circumcision of the flesh as much as it is mentioned as a circumcision of the heart. And how many times does the Lord have to tell the Jewish people, you know, you do all of these things on the outside, but inwardly you're far from me. Jesus having to confront the Pharisees constantly and eventually bringing woe upon them, judgment upon them. Why? Because here they were doing all of these things on the outside to be seen of men, yet on the inside they were whitewashed tombs. They were just sepulchres full of empty bones. Bones with no life. Dead men's bones. But coming to Jesus Christ, the Gentiles' hearts were circumcised unto the Lord spiritually. Because that's what God intended for the circumcision to be a type of. The circumcision of the heart. But they want to put this yoke of bondage on the backs of the Gentiles. In essence, they were telling the church to move from the sunlight into the shadows. To move from the sunlight that comes from God Himself and the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, and the light that He gives us to live in, in, because now we're called children of light, move out of that light and go back into the shadows. I've often told this story, so you've probably heard it. I love Thanksgiving. I think most of you like Thanksgiving because you like the turkey. I like turkey too. And all the fixings. 
there on Thanksgiving Day. You know, we come to church at 8 o'clock every Thanksgiving morning. We have our church till 9 o'clock, then we get you to go out and finish your turkeys. And, and, you know, let me give you a scenario of one person who makes a turkey and, and starts cooking the turkey, and then the family's all gathered around waiting, their mouths are watering because they can start smelling, oh, that wonderful smell of that turkey cooking in the, in the oven, and, and then the fixings are starting to be made, and you've got cranberries and you've got the yams and you've got everything else that you add to it uh, frijoles or whatever else you know you've got all these things going on it's cooking man and I mean you you're just like you're turning the TV on to watch the football but your mouth's watering you know so you got to go out and get some snacks you know and whatever because you're waiting for that turkey and finally after all of those you know you have to uh, so many minutes for pound or whatever when it's all finally done and, and the turkey's prepared and, and you know the mom brings it out she doesn't go to the table, and you're all sitting around the table, looking at the middle of the table, but she doesn't go to the table. She goes to the windowsill. She goes and opens the window and puts the turkey on the windowsill and puts it in just the right place so that the sun, when it shines, casts, you know, hits the turkey and casts the shadow right on the table. And you say, let's eat. And you're sitting there, you know, eat what? Well, there's the shadow of the turkey. Isn't that the most ridiculous story you've ever heard? You start attacking the windowsill. But you see, what were they saying? Here's the shadow of the turkey. There's the shadow. You don't want the shadow. You want the substance. Bring that turkey over here. Most of you know Psalm 23. David, when he speaks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, a lot of people mis misread that particular passage. Or they just say, David talks about going through the valley of death. No. He talks about going through the valley of the shadow of death. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. What can a shadow do? Has anybody ever been hurt by a shadow before? Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The shadow and the sacrifices then time and time and time and time again can never make those who approach perfect. It isn't the shadow. Colossians chapter 2 Paul clarifies Verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, ordinances, ceremonial law. Verse 17. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. In so many words, these certain men, these Judaizers, were saying, a Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It is not sufficient, it is not enough for them simply to trust Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. And so, they say, unless they are circumcised, According to the law of Moses, they cannot 
be saved. But then think about that word again, unless. Unless you belong to our group, unless you participate in our ceremonies and keep our rules, you can't be saved. Unless you add this and that to Jesus Christ, you can't be saved. Why have I seemingly exhausted this issue today? Some of you are saying, don't say seemingly. Why have I seemingly exhausted this issue today? Simply because we face the same challenges that Paul and Barnabas and the early church faced. If it isn't adding to Jesus, which is happening a lot today in cults and and in uh, in other various uh, forms of, of religious or spiritual activity, if it isn't adding to Jesus today, it is also taking him completely out of the picture. Oprah and her new spirituality. I I want to keep driving at this, folks, because it is hard to believe that 15 to 20 million people will watch her five days a week, and many of them profess to be Christians, even after she has said, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. There are many other ways. Her endorsement of the Course of Miracles, or Course in Miracles, which in, on her website allows some, somewhere between one and two million people to take this course, many of them professing Christians. And then there's the emerging church movement with its relativistic view that there has to be more than one way to God. We ought not to just kind of, you know, keep this fundamental thing of of just preaching Jesus and all. We need to have conversations. And we need to have conversations with Buddhists. And we need to have conversations with others of the New Age movement because they have things that they could probably add to our spirituality to help us understand Jesus better. That's what a lot of the emerging church people are saying today. Relativistic view. Not an absolute view of Scripture. Not an absolute view of Jesus being the Savior. And some people are calling them the new evangelicals. Oh, and then they also say that we ought to not be so narrow in our views as Christians. Well, I'm sorry, but when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, I believe that. And I stand on that. Because Jesus said it. And I can trust that he's faithful to accomplish everything he says that he'll accomplish. And all these things and many more contribute to the challenge of standing up to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as handed down to us by the apostles. And listen carefully to Paul when he says in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 10, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. That is what we are facing today. That is our challenge. Many different gospels. And by the way, he says in verse 7, which is not another, it's false. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, notice how he puts himself in this picture, even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed twice in two verses. Consecutive verses. For do I not persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I am not here to please men. I am here to please God. And the only way, the best way, the one way to please God is to stand on His truth and to proclaim His truth. The truth is, Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He was buried and on the third day He rose again from the dead. That is the gospel. That is what we are to preach. Jesus Christ is alive. He said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll send you the Holy Spirit and you will have the Spirit in you and upon you and with you. But certain men continue to creep in unnoticed in the church. We have to notice it, folks. We have to get ourselves awakened and begin to notice the problems that are entering into the church because some of these people creeping in are dressed in sheep's clothing. Why? To cover their deception. But even others in outright wicked garb. They're Christians today accepting new age techniques simply because it was, uh, it was uh, something given to them at work. You know, he, you know here's, a, here's a book to increase your productivity as a salesman or as a whatever it may be, a corporate executive or whatever. You know, there's some breathing techniques that will help you. Oh, yoga, you know, this should, you know, do the whatever. You know, I'm, uh, you know, this is all supposed to help your mind. But, but you know, if you do any major study on this, you realize something. When we meditate, we meditate on the Word of God so that God will feed us and we are in communion with, with Christ. When they meditate, when the New Age, you know, the basic New Age te- technique of meditation has to do with clearing your mind. Well, Satan would love that, wouldn't he? He'd love to clear your mind so he can fill it with all kinds of garbage. We are to fill our minds and our hearts with the wisdom, mercy, goodness, grace, nobility of Jesus Christ and His Word. Well, whatever the case, the desire is really the same. There are two extremes. There are those who creep in to get us to go toward some uh, 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 licentious behavior. Okay, well, with the grace of God, we can do whatever we want. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end says, no, you have to do this if you want to be a Christian. But it all comes back to, to this whole issue of adding to Jesus Because in Jude 4 it says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's lewdness and licentiousness or whether it's legalism to get our minds off of Christ and what He has done, it still comes down to the same thing. It's an error against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we delve into into the rest of Acts chapter 15 next time, We do so with the good news. There there is good news here. That there was an immediate confrontation to the error brought in by those certain men. I'll read it to you and this is where we're going to pick up next time. But in Acts 15 verses 2 through 4, notice it says, Therefore when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. In other words, they heard error and they responded quickly to it. It was no small dissension. It wasn't, well let's have a conversation about this. You know, that, that's, that's a key word in the, in the emerging church movement today. Let's have a conversation about this. 
<laughs> I said, this, this is no small thing here. It was no small dis- dissension and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas, in other words, those in the church of uh, Antioch uh, in uh, Syria, and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. So, that begins now the rest of the story. But I wanted to lay down this particular foundation. I think it is important for us as believers in Jesus Christ never to lose sight of the basics of our faith. Never to lose sight of the, of the foundation upon which we stand as Christians. And to realize that if we lose that, then we will be vulnerable to any kind of truth or, well, so-called truth, or any kind of thing that people will throw at us. I don't want you to be vulnerable. I want you to be victorious in Christ and in His truth. And I want you to stand upon that truth. And I want you to know that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that today is a good day because you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it is and how it changes our lives. And if you've never prayed to receive Christ, I ask the Lord to minister to your heart right now, to speak to you, to move by the power of His Holy Spirit, to cause you to repent of your sins, to call out to the Lord and to say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. I I cry out for your mercy, for I have sinned against you and you alone. And I need the salvation of Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that He rose again from the dead. I need new life. If you've never done that, do that today. Let's pray.